You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Well, good morning. We have half of you in the shade and half of you in the light. That fits really well with our Psalm 36 we've been reading. But uh, if you need to move at any point to get either warmer or cooler, you might get too hot in the sun. You're welcome to do that. I want to start this morning with two striking cultural insights from two guys named David. It's not David Bacon, although you should ask him. He's got some good insights too. Two other Davids. Uh, The first one is a guy named David Brooks. David Brooks is a conservative journalist that writes for the New York Times. That sounds paradoxical to even say that together in the same sentence, but he's still there, I think. And he wrote an article a couple of years ago at this point now that the title of the article is pretty striking. He says, the nuclear family was a mistake. You're like, ooh, that's, that sounds kind of intense. And then he begins to tell the history. He says, in the 1800s, the idea of the family was uh, really not just two parents and a couple of kids, but the idea of a family was an extended family where dozens of people would live under the same roof, where the idea of family was uh, really expansive. It wasn't just uh, nuclear in the sense of what we think of today, but uh, it would be a ton of people living together, aunts and uncles, friends, grandparents, all together, servants or workers, sadly part of that slavery included. But he said something transitioned at the end of the 1800s and the end of the 1900s, the Industrial Revolution happened, and men and women went off to the factories to work and to pursue the American dream and to make something of their lives. And now the family began to become more narrowly defined to just two parents and 2.5 kids, traditionally. And then, for many, way, for many reasons, it really worked. Uh, in 1960s, 75% of households had two parents uh, with however many kids they had. And it seemed like this was a good model that was working really well in the United States and the Western world. But then the 70s came. In the 70s, for a variety of reasons, for both societal, economic, uh, families began to fracture and split. The rise of individualism and personal autonomy saw marriage and relationships as, in a sense, a crippling constriction on your life that needed to be disbanded so you could pursue personal freedom and happiness. And in the wake of the 70s, the last 50 years, the stats today are that only one-third of households have two parents in them. Most families have, in many ways, for whatever reason, has eroded and family systems have been destroyed. Really sad. Even today, some of our major, largest cities, uh, they're built on the premise of wanting individuals to live alone because they make good consumers in contrast with families or extended families. That's the first article of really good news for you. The second one is a guy named David French, David French. And he wrote an article uh, that's titled, let me have the title here. It says, Loss of Friendships Break Hearts and Nations. He starts his article with this really staggering stat. He says, 15% of all men and 10% of all women have zero close friends. Zero. They, They can't identify one close friend in their life. 
And he said there's this relationship vacuum happening in our country where more and more people are lonely. And so what do people do? They're turning to find relationship. And he says they're turning to these things he titles or calls factional friendships. A factional friendship is a friendship that's designed and identity and purpose around the loathing of another group of people. So people turn online, they find a political party or a cause to be a part of, and their identity and purpose is, in a sense, found in their loathing or frustration with another group of people. And these, in many ways, counterfeit friendships become a replacement for real, deep, meaningful connection. This is happening all around us. And this isn't just something that's happening out there in the world with the breakdown of family, the rise of counterfeit factional friendships. This is happening to us too. We're not immune. As much as we have a pandemic of coronavirus, we also have a pandemic of loneliness that has only accelerated the last couple of years. People are alone. They're looking for friendships, but they don't have them. They're isolated. Families are eroded, fractured. With all this news, how do we, as the people of God, create this counter-cultural community of being formed by God together for the sake of others? How do we, in the midst of a culture that is increasingly isolated, increasingly separated, become a people that really comes together to see us formed by God for the sake of others? We've been in a vision series this whole month of really that simple phrase, formed by God, together for the sake of others. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. The first week we talked about the story that in the midst of all these different cultural currents, we find ourselves in this one true story of the world that gives us identity and purpose to navigate those different currents. And I challenge us to not only demonstrate the gospel this year, but to grow in our winsome prophetic declaring of the gospel, to speak to people's hearts. Last week, we talked about being formed by God And we heard from Sandy, Sarah, and Stephanie. That was my favorite part of last week. Honestly, it was really good. And they helped us reimagine and cultivate a practice of listening to God through scripture, uh, encountering God through prayer, and enjoying God through Sabbath. That was last week, and that was the challenge for you. This week, I want to explore that phrase together in a culture of loneliness and isolation, a culture of factional friendships and erosion of family systems, How do we be a people that are together being formed by God? If you have a Bible, would you open it to 1 Peter 2? This is the passage we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 12. I'm going to read it again. We've been looking at this passage. This would be a really good passage to memorize or at least to really uh, put to your attention this month as we explore our identity as God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. It says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So right here, if you're listening to this passage and you're in line with the whole story of Scripture, You're hearing all these echoes of God's people, Israel, now being described also as the church here. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11. 
Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Another way to define the soul there would be just your whole self that that wage war against your whole person. Verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans. That sounds derogatory, but it's just describing those who are outside the community of faith. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. And I want to just point out one simple thing from the passage this week, as we've been kind of going through this passage each of the last three weeks, is this entire address to God's people is entirely in the plural. It's a community. You can't be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation as, a, as yourself, as an individual. It has to be a community. One of the most challenging things of the English language is how we translate the word you. Like you can mean both singular and plural. And often when we read Paul's letters and we read the Bible, we see you. And I don't know about you, but my default is to say you. Oh, he's talking to me as an individual. But I don't know the stats. I tried to find it this week on a Google search, but someone's got to do this for me. But of the yous that are used in the New Testament, I guarantee, don't, you need to find this later and you can send me the stat. I guarantee 90% of them at least are plurals, as in y'all. Now we need to, maybe we should do that. Maybe Sarah could help us out here. And all of the places you see you in first Peter and in your new Testament, you just add the LL at the end with it and cross out the, the O and the U. Just, just add y'all to every single place. And it would change our perspective of saying, no, this isn't something I can do as an individual. It's a community that embodies these identities. We're formed by God together. Now, when I look at these identities, like we talked about last week, holy nation, royal priesthood, people for God's special possession, declaring the praises of who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Again, I recognize, and I hope you do too, hope you do too the gap between what these identities are and how we live day to day. The process of formation is closing that gap. But the question is, why is it so hard, even in a missional community model church, to sometimes live into these identities as God's people? Why is it hard to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation? Why are we not immune to the challenges of our world of isolation, loneliness? Like, why, can't, why aren't we more different than we are? And so this morning, I just want to talk about three things that this week the Lord has really brought to me. In a sense, hindrances to us to live as God's people as a community, to live together, to be formed together. And I want you to, as I'm thinking, through, as we're listing these three um, hindrances to living as a community together and living out this identity of First Peter, I want to see for you which one comes to the surface that is a hindrance for you as you think about being formed with others as you follow Jesus and not just being formed as an individual. The first one is this. We often settle for intensity instead of intimacy. We often settle for intensity in relationship instead of intimacy. Here's what I mean. Intensity is a reaction to a previous generation's uh, numbness emotionally. Then in light of the numbness emotionally that maybe we experienced from our parents or grandparents, we've reacted the completely other way. We're, not com- we're completely driven by our emotional needs and desires. And so intensity becomes this thing where uh, it's impulsive. We're often, even the first time we meet somebody, we share with them some of our deepest and darkest things in the first very moments we've met them. 
we're looking for this, in a sense, emotional fix to try to meet this deep need of wanting to be known and loved in reaction to maybe where our parents or grandparents were less emotionally available. Intensity is something that uh, it's impulsive. Like I said, it it drives us to seek uh, in many ways, relationships that are, uh, that, that happen overnight. And yet intimacy is the thing that we actually want, but intimacy is this gradual revealing in relationship to the other. Think about even how God acts to the story. God gradually reveals himself over the course of the story to his people. It doesn't happen all overnight. It would overwhelm us, right? If we saw all of who God is and what he wants us and how he wants us to live and what it looks like to follow him. But it's a gradual process of intimacy with him, with trust being built. I think of intensity as like fast food. It feels really good when you eat it right away, right? For the first 30 minutes or hour afterwards, but then you feel sick and you need the next kick, the next sugar rush or whatever, where intensity is like just a well-balanced meal, like meat, if you eat that, broccoli and another side, like a well-balanced vegetable, protein, carbohydrate, whatever, whatever you need there to put together where you don't have that immediately rush and then immediately drop. Think about your relationships. How do we cultivate intimacy over a long period of time with others and not just settle for the quick fix of intensity? That's the first thing. The second one is this. We often desire compatibility instead of covenant. Compatibility instead of covenant. We live in a consumer culture where our preferences and choices are God. Go to the grocery store and try to pick out a a toothpaste or uh, whatever item you might need. You're going to have 25 choices at your disposal. We're looking for that preference or that choice, a thing that we find ourselves compatible with that we enjoy naturally. And we do that with our relationships. We gravitate towards the people that we find compatible with us, with our interests and our likes. I don't know about you, that's where I feel like I find myself. And yet the challenge is when you get into community, you find yourself with people that you don't enjoy, that annoy you, that frustrate you, that do the same darn things over and over again. And you're like, gosh, could they just figure it out? And we want to move away from those people, right? Like, I'm going to go find somebody over here that is more compatible with me. It's maybe in a similar spot with me. And yet, the beauty of God's people, his special possession, is that we're a covenant people, that we stick with each other through thick and thin, through challenges, through hardships, the people that are annoying and frustrating, because those people are forming us too. And here's what I've been struck with this week. We are incompatible with God. Like we, we don't, we don't, we're not compatible with him. And yet the gospel message is that God has come towards us in our incompatibility to offer us himself. And so therefore we can walk towards others that we wouldn't naturally connect with, that don't fit our preferences or our desires because we're the covenant people of God that stick with one another through thick and thin, challenge one another and step towards those sometimes even that frustrate and annoy us and irritate us that we would rather not step towards, that if it wasn't for God's people, we would never be friends with. But they're forming us, they're shaping us as God's people. The last one, so intensity, intimacy, compatibility, covenant. The last one is 
we desire relationships on our terms versus their terms. Our terms versus their terms. This often happens uh, when we think about people that are a similar season of life of us or maybe uh, have, again, the same interests or likes as us. But we want people and we assume people will meet us on our terms. Like, hey, we just expect people, hey, meet us, meet me where I'm at. But what would it look like as God's people to meet people on their terms? That takes sacrifice. It's challenging. It takes sometimes doing things that you wouldn't naturally do to step towards the other, to follow Jesus together. That could look like real simple. Like it could look like, hey, I'm going to actually step into this person's life, uh, into this young mother's life who is at home with a toddler doing laundry. I'm just going to step in in that space because I'm going to meet them on their terms in this season. It could look like, hey, you know what? I usually like to go to bed at 8.30 or 9 p.m. at night. But you know what? I'm going to stay out tonight because this person wants to go out to get a drink at 9.30, which sounds like midnight to me now. They're going to they're gonna ask me to go out at 9.30 like, hey, I'm going to step into this person's life even though I know that I have a, a little toddler at home that's going to be awake three times during the night and I'm going to wake up tomorrow for work and I'm going to be exhausted. But I'm going to step towards them on their terms. Or it's doing something sometimes that you don't actually naturally like to do. Like, hey, this person invited me to go for a run. I hate running. That's not, I'm talking, this is hypothetical. I actually really love running. I hate running. I would never do that but you're meeting them on their terms to follow Jesus together. Again, this is the gospel. God came to us on our terms. He became human, dwelt among us, met us, spoke our language, speaks our language today, meets us where we are at. Therefore, we can extend that same accommodation to others in God's people as we follow Jesus together. Let's talk about these three. Let's break them into groups. I'd love for you to get with somebody. Intensity versus intimacy. Compatibility versus covenant. Our terms versus their terms. For you, they're they're very similar, all three. Which one is the hardest for you to break through the barrier of following Jesus together in your season of life, your place of life? Ready, set, go. Let me call you back. You just confessed your sin to your neighbor. That's good. So whether you are uh, intensity versus intimacy, that's your default. Looking for that fix relationally, but have a hard time maybe committing for the long term of seeing a relationship gradually improve or change or to go through thick and thin. Whether you're compatibility versus covenant, that's, these are all of us, right? We're looking for our preferences and our choices, people that are easy for us to love and step towards. Or really the last one, their terms versus our our terms, or my terms versus your terms, where uh, it's really hard for you to be disrupted. I was talking over here, like, oh, that's actually, I think that's probably my one in the sense of, like, I I don't like to be disrupted. Like, I like to have things scheduled and planned. And for things to be disrupted feels like, well, I don't really want to meet that person on their terms because it wasn't in my calendar. I know some people here that resonate with me with that. Whether you're any of those things, the question you might have is like, well, I've been really wounded by community. Like if you're in following Jesus together for a long time, you're going to be hurt. Like all of us have experienced a sense of betrayal, frustration, pain. Uh, we've tried to step towards relationships with others and they don't reciprocate. We feel lonely. Like I've been wounded by community. 
it'd be easier just to kind of follow Jesus on my own. There's this really good quote. It's by Rich Velotis. Uh, he's got a really book, good book called Deeply Formed Life. Uh, he says this, which I think is really good. He says, we are wounded in community and we are healed in community. There's no way around it. The healing might not always come in the same community, but community is needed nonetheless. As we follow Jesus, we're going to get wounded in community of doing, being formed by God together. But our healing also comes through community with people to help us uh, in many ways be reparented, restored, redeemed, renewed. Sometimes even the same people that wounded us become those who help us heal. That's just my encouragement for you if you're feeling in a place of not knowing where you fit in community or even working through these. It's challenging. I want to give you guys a challenge like I've been giving each week. And the challenge is really simple. From January to June of this year, I want you to think through and reflect, and we'll do it right now. Who could be for you, I'm going to use the word, a gospel partner to follow Jesus with these next six months? Maybe you already have someone like that that comes to mind. A gospel partner. And if I were to offer a course correction or maybe an insight to our culture as a church, is we are really good at talking about our Enneagram numbers, our dietary preferences, our current work status and what we're doing at work. We're really good at talking about all these things that are important things. But I feel like we really struggle with intentional conversation around what does it look like to follow Jesus in this season? to follow Jesus together? What is God doing in me, around me, and through me, intentionally in relationship? That what if our conversations, yes, included those other important things, but they also included deep reflection on what is Jesus actually doing in your life? And how is he calling you to trust and obedience this week, this month, these next six months? And so right now, I just wanna uh, give us maybe a couple of minutes And I want you to reflect on who could be a gospel partner for you. And again, maybe you already have somebody that this is an intentional relationship that you're building as you reflect together on how Jesus is is molding and shaping you both for yourself and for the sake of others. But just let's spend the next two to three minutes. And if you want, this this is an invitation on expectation. It might be worth even reaching out to that person today or even right now, even in a simple text message, even somebody who's not here to say, hey, I would like to partner with you these next six months and grow in intentionality towards following Jesus together because I can't do it alone. And I'd like to explore what that looks like and to have our conversations maybe shift towards what is Jesus actually up to and how can we call one another to trust and obedience? So let's spend the next two or three minutes just reflecting silently in this space, seeing what the Spirit brings to mind, a person, and how he might have you respond. Make sure you reach out if you haven't already this week to that person or people, maybe they're here, maybe they're not. But what would it look like to really follow Jesus together, to be formed by God together for the sake of others, to really have gospel partners that as we partner together in God's story and mission, to see his kingdom advance, to see our hearts transformed, see the places of our lives that are dark experience light. Uh, A couple of months ago, I read a really uh, interesting book. It's been out for a couple of years. It's called Tribe by Sebastian Junger, or Junger, I don't know how you say his last name. And basically the book is about how communities, the dynamics of how communities are formed. 
like what makes strong communities. And he tells a story of the early, uh, the early days of America when the settlers first came and the colonies were formed and their relationship with the natives that were already here. And one of the things that often happened in those early days is that uh, both groups would, in a sense, capture somebody from the opposite group. So the settlers would maybe capture a prisoner from uh, one of the tribes, or some one of the tribes would capture a, a, a settler that had come over uh, to explore the new world. And it would back and forth, back and forth. Well, then often they would rescue uh, these people. Like some of the settlers would rescue one of their brothers that had been captured by one of the tribes. But this interesting thing would happen over and over again. Often those who were rescued that had come over as settlers and formed these new colonies would defect and run back to the tribe. They couldn't figure it out. Why, why are people defecting from this, in their mind, superior culture to go live among the tribes again? Really, it's really simple. Those who had lived among the tribes had experienced such a rich form of community and belonging to one another in the growing hyper-individualistic culture of the new world that they wanted to defect back to join with what's going on there, even though they first had been captured. There was no known, there's no known accounts of the opposite happening where someone from one of the tribes defected to join the new settlers. As I was saying about this picture of this type of community, tight-knit community together, the vision I have is in a culture of increasingly loneliness and isolation like we talked about up front, in a culture of factional friendships, an erosion of family systems, in a culture of hyper-individualism where you do you at the expense of any other commitment or community, in a culture where all relationships and commitments are seen as crippling uh, restraints on our life for our personal freedom and happiness, what would it look like in our city for there to be a group of defectors in the hyper-individualist culture to join us as God's people because of the tight-knit community we form, not for ourselves, but then for the sake of others, that men and women in our city would peer into our communities and they would want to be part of that. They would forsake the gods of our culture and say, I want to be part of a community like this around Jesus as King. And then we would send them back out to see others, men and women that are in isolation and loneliness, experience the richness of what it means to know Jesus as King. That'd be my hope. At the, uh, in the first Peter, at the, um, the end of the passage, uh, it says, you, are not my, you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. Here's what I wanna lead us to communion this morning. So the band can come up, band as in just Kenny this morning, and those who are serving communion. It says that little phrase, you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. It's from Hosea chapter two. In Hosea, the, the chapter one is really bad news like bad news. The prophet's basically saying, God has abandoned you or he's, he's done with you because you have been unfaithful to the covenant promises you've made to be God's people. And for the first 10 verses of Hosea 1, it's just bad news after bad news to the point where now this woman who's now married to the prophet who was a prostitute has to name her children names like, you are not my people. Like, hey, name your first child, not my people, because that's what you've done to me as your God. You've abandoned me and the covenant I've made with you. And it's spiraling worse and worse and worse and worse. And then you get to verse 10, which is what's quoted here in 1 Peter 2. 
And it's like that phrase in Ephesians 2 that says, but God being rich in mercy, like that, the but God, like God has intervened. It says, yet, Hosea 1.10 says, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore. That's a promise to Abraham, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said of them, you are not my people. They will be called children of the living God. Verse 11, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together and they will appoint one leader and he will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. We've been formed together as God's people. We were once not a people. And now what the king has done, Jesus, he's formed us as a people to be a visible sign, a foretaste, a picture of what he's like in the world. And so each week we come to this table to participate in the life that he's given us the life that he's brought together to form us as his people and to do it together, not alone. And so usually we take communion by ourselves or with a couple other people around you. Today, I want you to grab the elements and I want you to wait. And we're gonna circle like we've done a couple times in the past. And as the people of God together, who were once stranded and isolated from God, who have now through Jesus' death and resurrection been brought into his family, we get to collectively take his body and his blood to nourish us as God's people to be sent out together so that others might experience that good news, that we might see defectors join us in a culture of individualism and autonomy so they might experience the richness of community and belonging that Jesus offers us. So would you come to the table? Would you stand with me? I'm gonna read for us from 1 Corinthians. I'm gonna invite you to the table. Once you get the body and the blood, the bread and the juice, hold it, and then we'll take it together as a family. It says this, on the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink this all of you for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many. Notice that word covenant that God has made with us and for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. And we say this each week, the core of who you are and your identity that shapes not you alone, but also us as a community, that Christ has died Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Let's say it together and then come and receive from the King. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive from the King.